All right, and we're off. Sons of the Hunt podcast, season three, episode 10. This is one I've been looking forward to all week. Just amazing guests. I, I don't even know where to start. Multi-restaurant <laughs> conservationist, deer farmer, Michelin star chef, um, Mike Robinson. Yeah, well, it's host, lovely host, to be here, guys. Host of Farming the Wild. I just um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I feel very spoiled, and um, I'm very honoured to be on your on your podcast. Um, yeah, it's 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 been an adventure the last couple of years. I mean, making a show for an American audience is something that's quite nerve wracking for a Brit, you know, um, because I know we do things slightly differently here. The way we hunt, the way we the way we we manage wildlife, the way we do things. It's um, yeah, it's just different. Yeah. And uh, for for me and Jay, at least very attractive. It's, it's a different it's just a completely different dichotomy. It's just it just worlds different the way the UK views conservation as to how we view it over here. And it's just uh, I don't know. We're into it. Well, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. I think it's a historic thing. So <clears throat> what it boils down to is that in the UK, we essentially have no public land. Um, I, I mean, like basically none. There are there are national parks, um, but generally those national parks are owned by people, but they are within a national park area. So they, they're limited to what they can. Those landowners are limited to what they can do. So you have almost no public land like America's amazing because you have all this incredible public land that's owned by you, you know. Um, and, and the thing I love about the U.S. is the way <clears throat> game and wildlife is actually managed really carefully and, 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 and well. And that's amazing. Sometimes in Britain, it, it, it isn't, you know, it's the management of the wildlife is left entirely to people like me. So uh, I, I, the way I work, and if I give you a brief rundown on what we do, um, I basically started with restaurants. I'm a chef and I've always been fascinated by the concept of, of, of being able to utilize wild food as a primary ingredient resource, a really sustainable one. Actually, when I started doing it, I didn't even, never even heard the word sustainable. I just thought it was cool to do it and I wanted to do it. And, um, and I, rem I, I then got into deer stalking and I, I remember picking up my first lease, my first piece of land to manage. It's a couple of hundred acres shooting a few roe deer every year. And, and I thought, hey, this is a great idea. So instead of paying a, a supplier to give me four legs of venison, because let's just say we can put wild deer, wild game into the public food chain in the UK. It's a big difference, I know, but we can. As long as it goes through a system of veterinary checking and inspections and all that, we can do it. So I rented piece of land and the way it works in the uk is let's just say a landowner has an issue with deer which a lot of them do and it's getting worse uh someone like me can come along and say i will manage your deer i'll, I'll pay you a sum of money for the lease for the deer and i in return will undertake to manage the deer numbers and that requires that requires a balancing act because in the uk wing shooting bird shooting pheasant shooting is the predominant sporting land use above all else there's barely a square square kilometer of land in this country that doesn't have a, a pheasant shoot or a partridge shoot or some sort of a shoot on it. And they take priority over deer. Deer are not really considered a, a, a valuable sporting entity in any, any way. So quite often what I'll do is I'll then take the lease for the deer 
And then I'll have to manage those deer in conjunction with the gamekeeper who's looking after the birds. So you get conflicts because the keeper doesn't want you there on certain days and he's shooting, he doesn't want disturbance. You've got to, you've got to manage the deer, etc. And we just live with that. But the other thing is the deer numbers in the UK are rampant. There's probably more deer than there've ever been since Roman times, 2000 years ago. Um, weirdly, I mean, the, the forested area of the UK has gone up as well with tree planting, etc. But we've got a situation now where, where certain species of deer are, are nearly uncontrollable in the UK and they're causing environmental damage. In other words, regrowth of forestry, tree planting, etc., is hugely impinged by, by deer numbers. And they're causing huge agricultural issues. They're causing problems with a hugely built up population. I mean, the population in the UK is about 65 million souls in an area that's, I don't, I, I don't know what size it is. It's like, it's like not very big. It's like one of your small estates, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it, it, and, um, and so we've got this conflict. So my job, I manage now about 50,000 acres of land. I have wow. the leases on 50,000 odd acres. Wow. And I took the undertaking that I would, I would use, I would, this is why I called the show Farming the Wild, because that's what I do. We farm the wild. I literally get my primary protein for my restaurants from the wild. So I'm the, the land manager. I'm the, um, so the land manager, I'm the processor, I'm the butcher, and I'm the end user as well. So we, I think we're the only people in the UK that do that. And it's, it's an interesting, difficult, but massively rewarding journey. And, um, and uh, it just means that sometimes you think it's pouring with rain and it's, uh, <laughs> and I, I sound indulgent here, but you know, uh, this week we've got to shoot 20 fallow deer, <laughs> you know, and, and we've got to shoot them because otherwise next week we've got to shoot 25. You, and that's, you to get you guys still have 24 hours in a day over there, right? Yeah, I, well, I, don't know, I don't know how <laughs> you're doing this. It, like, what, and just on top of that, running multiple restaurants. Yeah, well, I, I don't try and do it myself. It's, it's um, the way I do it is I have a full time deer manager who I employ who, who manages overseas it all, and then I have a distribution business called Deer Box, whereby we cut it all, we get a butcher to break all the venison up, box it, package it, freeze it, and then we send it out in boxes to the public, and then there's to the restaurants, which is less now because there really aren't any at the moment. And then um, I have each piece of land. I have a certain number of syndicate members who will, uh, who will, um, uh, who I charge a small amount to, to to do it because I have to pay the landowner, and they then have pretty much unlimited rights to hunt deer, pretty much 365 days a year on that land. So we say to them, "Here's the cull. Here's what we need." Here's how often we need it. You need to go out there at least twice a week, three times a week, and please try and bring in the right deer. We're not just killing anything willy-nilly. We're very disciplined. It has to be the right animal. So we're we're not we're not harvesting deer for um, sport or antlers. We're harvesting deer for management, conservation, and meat. If that makes sense. And Absolutely. So very different i think it's just very different but you know it's the way it is i think we'd be well served to kind of take a little bit of a lesson from that um i mean you know we do a pretty good job here in the states as it is in regard to managing our wildlife but it wasn't always like that you know mm. so uh back in like the 1700s 1800s i mean there were no rules so people being people 
uh, they kind of hunted a lot of uh, species into almost extinction, some mm -hmm. to extinction. So we were kind of, our hand was forced in developing things like the North American model of wildlife conservation. And, mm -hmm. and that's been uh, huge in helping us as a tool to help us rebuild the populations that we see today. And, yeah. you know, it, it's built of seven different tenets or the sisters of conservation as they call it. And the second one, it prohibits any kind of commerce of dead wildlife. So um, because of what had happened in the past with the uh, the market hunting and it wasn't even so much subsistence hunting it was more the market hunting that that really put a, a dent in in our wildlife here I, a, more than a dent honestly um, but so that prevents us from doing things like you guys have the the opportunity yep. to do um, so it's very unique to see that type of process and to hear a little bit about it and how you select your animals and, yep. and how you go about, you know, we, we have a, a bit of a two camps here. Uh, you have your meat hunters and your trophy hunters and everybody identifies in a certain camp when it comes mm -hmm. to our hunters here. You know what I mean? And not that there's anything wrong with either side. They all have no. their pros and cons, no question. Uh, but that's kind of a, a beautiful blend of the two. Um, you know, you're looking for a specific animal, which how Mark and I are the same way. We'll go and we'll look at a doe, for instance. It's hard to tell, like, what, where's the trophy aspect in a, in a doe? And well, I always said I mean, that the trophy for me runs along the spine, not growing out of yeah, the head. Yeah. You know, and I would I would say that it's the shoulders personally. I mean, yeah. my <laughs> I'm obsessed with deer shoulders. We 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 do a lot of things with them and there. And uh, and that moves on to other subjects like where you shoot them and things like that. But we um, you know, look at the end of the day, for me, my greatest pleasure in the world is is um creeping into a piece of woodland and seeing uh and seeing after three or four years of managing it, some fantastic antlers, but, and then we will shoot those antler deer. Absolutely. Because once they get past their prime, they're just going to go backwards and there's no point in that. So we'll take them at that point. Um, but we just don't, we don't do any, we don't get any financial reward for that. If you see what I mean? There, there's no, that's just done as part of the management program. But um, right. we in Britain, the first thing to, to understand is that in Britain, we, 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 we call it stalking. It, it, it's not called hunting. Um, hunting is when you charge around on the back of a horse chasing a fox. Um, it's in, it, that's in the UK. We call it stalking, deer stalking, um, because traditionally you creep around after them. And, um, and that's because you've got to remember there are very few people with firearms. Um, we don't have a right to bear arms in the UK. Um, to, you sort of have a right to have a shotgun. But to have a firearm in the UK, a centre fire or rim fire firearm, is considered a privilege, not a right. So if you've done nothing wrong and you have good reason to own one and you can justify it to the police, you can own one. There's no issue with that. But there's a heck of a process to go through to get one. And um, and so and the police, uh, their interest is public safety. So they are terribly cautious about who gets them. And um, as a result of that, there aren't that many people who stalk deer. I mean, in the whole of the UK, I'm guessing on their license that says you may stalk, you may shoot deer with that weapon. There's probably 50 or 60,000 people, you know. Wow. That's probably it. So maybe a hundred. I, I just don't know the figure. I'm just taking a wild ass guess. Sure, sure. But um, 
Not that many. And so the issue is land's private. Um, you know, what I do is I, I sit down with landowners and I say what and farmers and I say, where are the issues? What what would you like to see? What's your what's your desired result? Um, but the problem is, of course, with some most of our deer species, particularly fallow deer, which in my area are the big agricultural environmental issue. They're my favorite deer. I love them. They're what I make my living from edibly. But the fallow is a herd deer. And I mean, I've seen I've got gangs of deer within five miles or 10 miles of where I sit now, not on my land. And there's there's a gang of over 500 deer that live all year round in one. Oh, wow. And they cause huge damage. And it's because there's a group of farms in that area. And one farmer there, one lady will not allow the deer to be shot. And the deer know that extremely well. So uh, by daytime, by daylight every day, because it's illegal to shoot a deer at night in the UK, um, they're back on that land. And there are these safe zones all over Britain and deer are multiplying. There's also now this year, there's a perfect storm happening this year, which is that after COVID restaurants have been demolished, annihilated, and um, in a, particularly the type of restaurants that serve a lot of venison are... Um, uh, 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 the, the smarter restaurants usually etc they are they're often in the cities they're often catering to the business crowd now those restaurants are the ones that have been hit so hard because there's no one's working in the city as a result of that um as a result of that you've got the issue that um they're not there's no there isn't sufficient demand this year for the venison so we need to shoot a certain number of deer in the uk each year just to stop them breeding outbreeding us to keep the environmental damage down to the minimum. However, we're in a situation this year that we may not have a market for them all. So, so well, are, are, you're in the process right now of brainstorming on how to how to pivot pretty much. Big time, and we are. I mean, I, I've, I've set up a, I've, my business was, my business was subsidizing my own restaurants by selling to other restaurants effectively. And um, with the very best quality wild venison. And now I've basically completely pivoted to uh, a deer box scheme whereby people can uh, have that venison delivered next day to their house for their own freezers with full provenance and, you know, amazingness. Now, I hope that'll work. And I've, I'm, I've got a feeling it will because, you know, what have we got to shift? We've got to shift about a thousand deer carcasses this year, um, which sounds a lot, but actually, you know, it's... It, it's doable. <laughs> it's 30 a week in the Z for eight months. There's, there's probably some international restrictions that are going to prevent us from ordering a couple of those boxes. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you beat me to it, man. You beat me to it. Yeah. That's a bummer. So as far as, as that service goes, are, are you guys like processing it into different yeah. items, different products? Like, so you have burgers, brats, steaks. How, um, how are you guys? So I, can, I can run through a list of a few of the things. So when when um, lockdown happened, I still had 20 or so fallow deer hung up in my chiller. No restaurants to sell to them. Like, so I gave a bunch to, I, I processed a half a dozen and sent them up to a homeless charity in London who were running out of food. So we sent them a load of venison to them. But then the, um, the, the landowners got together and said, please, will you continue managed stalking deer because we're worried about damage you know spring crops were coming through etc etc and um so i thought well okay so i i sat down with my wife and we said okay well 
we'll try this. So we, 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 I spoke to the government vets. I explained what I wanted to do. We, um, we basically, I got my head chef and my sous chef down from the restaurant to help. And we, um, in my, my processing larder, and instead of sending them whole to restaurants, we broke them down. So I butchered nonstop for eight weeks. I think I butchered 110 deer in eight weeks. And oh, we, God. and we did, and these are white tail sized deer. And we did, um, and we processed them into various different cuts. The main, the main price, the main cut that's of the most use is off the haunches, the back legs. So all of the four primal muscles off the haunch, apart from the shank, get turned into parves. The parves the, the classic primal cut trimmed and then cut into big fat chunks, like like eight ounce chunks. And they they that's this mainstay in the restaurant. You come to our restaurant, you'll eat a pave of venison with dirty mashed potatoes, um, veg, um, roasted bone marrow with truffle and stuff like that. And um and then and deer gravy. Um and then you um, sounds like a Tuesday night at my house, you know. Yeah. But I would like to say that our gravy is <laughs> not like your gravy. Our gravy is dark brown, not white. <laughs> it's, it's different um we we uh yeah gravy in britain is very much meat juices or jus if you like yeah um so so we um so we do the parves that's a, that's a biggie i mean like off a fallow deer i get off a off a an 80 pound fallow carcass i get about um i suppose i get 36 parves off the two hind legs plus the two shanks and then we try and do everything on the on the saddle on the mainstay of the carcass on the bone so if the animals of decent size i take the saddle saw it in half longitudinally cut it across into t-bones so i do fallow deer t-bones i don't take the back straps out um and then off the front end i do two bone two bone uh, french trim ribs you know racks nice um and, or four bone or whatever people want shoulders we then off the bigger ones we cut them in half on the bone and we braise them long and slow and then we pull out the shoulder blade and we we glaze them with honey and mustard and apple juice and then we vac pack them and then finish them in the wood-fired oven and they go all sticky and fall apart and they're they're ace um the necks we take the necks on the bone and we braise them brown them off on a grill and we braise them again overnight pull the neck fillets out, press them, and then, you know, brush them with goose fat, sprinkle them with, like, chicken skin and breadcrumbs and stuff, and finish them off and then carve them, and they're beautifully delicate and delicious. So we ver we take very little off the bone, um, because why would we? We're selling it by weight, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and meat tastes incredible on the bone. That's the thing. Now, agreed. If, if, you're got to, if you've got to process a deer in the wild like a lot of the time you do in the States, like in the mountains, uh -huh. you can't do that. And we, I totally get that. But when you're doing what we're doing, which is killing a deer in, in relatively easy surroundings, bringing it back to the deer larder, hanging it up. We hang it in the fur for, we hang all our deer in the fur for about a week to a week to 10 days. Then we skin them. Um, and then they get inspected and then they get, stamped by the government vet who turns up once a week and checks all the carcasses and looks for little bits of poo and 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 <laughs> other stuff and just they're really difficult people you know and um but that's good because it keeps us honest and makes sure the quality is as high as it can be and then we decide what to do with them but so in total they get about 10 days to two weeks hanging but hanging at like plus 0.5 of a degree above freezing so they're super chilled okay 
You, you mentioned something earlier though mm. that was super interesting to me is is what happens to the carcass you said within 45 minutes of you harvesting it how, how did how did you guys kind of find that out and what differences have you found so so it comes back to um it comes back to the the quest in restaurants for the holy grail in restaurants is for consistency mm -hmm. um so it's all about trying to make sure that it, a wild ingredient, which let's face it, they're not all the same. I mean, a lot of the time, if I'm looking at a gang of 30 fallow deer, I'm trying to pick generally a mature female to shoot in the winter. That's what I'm after. Males don't do the breeding, females do. So if we want to control a population, mainly we're shooting females. So we're trying to shoot a mature female. And so I'll try and pick one of those. But as long as it's a mature female, my criteria mainly will be if it stands still and it's clear of the others that's how it gets selected because we have to get it's a numbers game we have to get the numbers so thing things that are key the first thing is shot placement um the quicker the quicker the deer drops the better it is so most of our shots are neck shots um we very rarely shoot a deer in the chest um so we almost always shooting off sticks standing up so cross sticks you know rests in the woods creeping around the woods and we we generally shoot our deer at relatively close range because it is mostly woodland hunting. If it's uh, any longer than 100 yards, we shoot them in the body. Um, however, we try and be very careful to, sh to miss the shoulders. So we make sure they're very parallel and we try and go about three ribs back from the shoulders and halfway up so that we're punching through both lungs. And uh, we never lose a deer because I've got two excellent dogs I stalk with. And once I've shot the deer and it's run off, if it's run off 60 yards they they find it for me and they tell me dad it's it's here so millie and sorrel are the stars of the show yeah they're, they're, i've got it's, to tell you they're seriously good dogs i mean they're mongrels right i mean they're not some super breed um sorrel's millie's daughter and they've been coming stalking since they were eight weeks old and all i go is and they just boom they're right there by my heel and they never screw it up they never chase deer they just love it they live for it that, it, it blows my mind the way they move when you move. It, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, well, I haven't really taught them, you know. I just took them out since they were babies and they get it. I mean, you're just training a wolf to be a wolf. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. true. True enough. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot easier than teaching a dog to run in, pick up a bird, bring it back to you and spit it out, you know. Yeah, really. fair yeah. enough. Um, so, yeah, so, one, so, so getting back to your point, carcass quality is everything so what we've learned the hard way um is that uh, the single most important thing is how fast you can bleed a deer so that's key so we 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 if i'm in a rarely i'm up a high seat but if i'm up a high seat or a tree stand and i shoot a deer or two boom boom um <clears throat> generally we shoot two if we can um because we're rifle shooting them and generally we're neck shooting them so generally they you know, Sparko. Um, as soon as we know that deer's dead, then we will we will get to it as quick as we can. That's the first thing. Now I get it with things like bow hunting that you can't do that. You've got to wait and etc. But generally with bow hunting, you've bled the deer when you've shot it. <laughs> right. You know. So we'll approach the deer and then we'll try and get it pointing slightly downhill in one way or another, head down. And the first thing we'll do is we'll growlic or the growlic is the Scottish word for gutting. Um, we'll growl the deer. So we'll bleed the deer immediately. Deep stick in the neck, um, cut the aorta, move the leg back and forth, then let it bleed out for five minutes. If you can do that within 
10 minutes of being shot, um, it makes the most staggering difference to the quality of the meat. Uh, we've done tests on it where we've left a deer an hour and we've left a deer 20 minutes and five minutes. And the coloration difference in the meat between five, 20, 40 and an hour is mind boggling. Um, and uh, universally, the paler the meat comes out, the better the better it tastes, the more the customer likes it, et cetera, et cetera. Because you haven't got, because blood goes off quicker than anything else. Blood rots faster than anything else. So you've smelt the back of your car if you've ever had anything dead in it after a few hours, it stinks. And that's because blood rots so fast. So <clears throat> you bleed a deer real quick. And then the second thing you've got to do is get it, is gralicate. You've got to get it out. So the, the problem you have, if, if you don't gralic a deer quickly from a meat quality perspective, as, as peristalsis slows down and the, the deer starts to blow up, um, any contamination, particularly on body shots, um, gets forced into the muscle tissues. Right. And you get large patches of contamination and uh, it just it just affects the meat quality. And our problem is because every deer we sell is inspected by a government veterinarian. If we get that, they'll condemn the carcass. So <clears throat> we tend to gralic quite quickly. Um, we'll tend to gralic really for quickly. I mean, like, we, it takes about 90 seconds to do a deer, a fallow deer, top to bottom with two of us. It's just, it's, it, you just get used to it. You do a lot of them. Yeah. So a knife and a chest saw all out. And then what we'll do is if we want to continue stalking, we've got a muslin tubing. We'll hang the deer in a tree, wrap it in muslin cloth, the whole deer, so it can't get fly blown and the air can get to it. Carry on for another hour. And then if we haven't got another deer in an hour, we'll retrieve the deer, get back to the larder and get it in the chiller. Um, and that's how we do it. It's not, I mean, it's because the environment we're doing, we're doing it in allows us to do that. Um, but that's how you get the best quality venison for us. Um, bleeding and gutting fast and beautifully. And then when we get it back to the larder, we wash them out. And that is not so much to clean them as to get the to get the temperature inside the carcass down as fast as we can. Right, right. Yeah, that's a pretty contested point, washing out meat. Yeah, it is. Um, bear in mind, we're washing them with the skin still on. So okay. you're not washing the out outside of the meat. Right, you're okay. washing the internal cavity of the deer. Okay. Because gotcha. we do not skin a deer when it's warm or when we've just got it. it. It's it's hung in the fur always in this country. Okay. And again, I, we may be wrong doing that, <laughs> but it, it seems to work. I don't know if there is a right, or, right no, and right. It's know? what works for you. I never judge anybody on what they do, ever. Um, I, I, what I'm telling you is what works for us. Right. So, I mean, you, everything you've just said there has you know, culinary experience. It has bio ecological biology experience behind it. How, how did you get to this place? Like what did, did you, did made you a lot of mistakes? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I look, I, it was a gradual process um, over the last 20 years. Um, and I suppose I'm slightly obsessive and compulsive at the same time. So I like managing land. So I acquire more and more of it and, uh, and I'm willing to pay for it. I'm willing to, you know, I, I lose money every year managing deer. Like I lose quite a lot of money every year. 
that I don't, it doesn't, it's not profitable. It, what it does do is give me that I can, and this is a value that I can't even put a number on, is that it gives me an incredible USP for my restaurants. So whenever a journalist writes about what we do in our restaurants, they always write that, you know, this is a company that actually is so into it that they manage all their own deer. They don't buy them. You know, they do all this stuff and that, that, that helps the business in its own way. So, right. But I, I just, I'm just passionate about it. I love it. And I, I just think it's, um, it's an awesome privilege to be able to do it. And, and we are spoiled. If you ever come hunting in Britain, you'll blow your mind. I mean, Target I, can, I can go out and stalk a deer 365 days a year. That's amazing. We have no tags, um, no hunting licenses. Uh, the person who manages the deer on the land dictates what gets shot. It's that simple. Boy, it sounds like wow. a it sounds like a really free country. Yeah, yeah it's spectacularly <laughs> not, but um, <laughs> but it, it, it weirdly, you know, we can't own a pistol in this country. Um, you know, yeah. we, we it takes three months to get a rifle, but. Um, but once you've gone through all these processes and you've got the trust of a landowner and you've proved yourself and that you're responsible and safe and everything else, yes, it can be very free. I can wake up tomorrow morning. Um, what's it going to be like in four hours time? I could wake up, which I'm not going to, by the way. See, you don't sleep. I know. <clears throat> Pretty much not. And I could wake up in four hours time and think, oh, it's a nice morning. I'll go and stalk a roebuck and just go out, you know, <laughs> shoot a roebuck. <laughs> Um, so that's nice. We're very lucky. So yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. All right. My turn. All right, cool. So, um, you know, one thing I think, you know, I, I think we talked about it before we went live, you know, I kind of was poking around YouTube looking for different ways to cook wild game and different ways of butchering yeah. wild game. And, and that's kind of how I came across you, uh, some, some years ago. Um, and, and I think with, What's going on right now here in the States as well as over there in the UK with, um, you know, the, the pandemic and everything that's happening? Um, what I, I think a lot of hunters are going to find this year is that it's going to be very challenging to find an available butcher to take care of the game that they shoot. So if they shoot a deer, they're going to want to call up the butcher and say, hey, can I bring the deer in? And they're going to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm booked because everyone's trying to get beef Um pigs, that kind of thing. And farmers are selling mm. off their livestock. And these butchers are booked out for most good professional butchers are booked out for the next year. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of people, a lot of hunters who are not accustomed to having to do that on their own are going to find themselves in, in a bit of a quagmire when, when it comes to that, that stage. And uh, I, I watched a video that you did while you spoke about Mexico uh, you, you in Mexico uh, quite a bit every, every year. In fact, yeah. uh, Doctor Doctor Kroll, you did a yeah butchery. James, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. an amazing guy, yeah, yeah. And that was a really cool video because I, I I self butcher Mark. He does his own butchering, and a lot of the, our friends we kind of do it. But we were we did it, learned to do it before there was a YouTube. Uh, it was like just start cutting and see what happens, and eventually you start to figure it out. It's a big um, rabbit at the end of the day. Indeed, indeed, you know, and, and, and there's, it's very satisfying, honestly. When I get into butchering a deer, it's a very satisfactory process. Um, but for, for people who don't typically 
butcher their own. I mean, there's so many resources out there now for people to learn how to do it. Uh, it's, it's not hard. I mean, it it, isn't it's really not once you start doing it, but it's yeah. very intimidating for people who have never done it. it so fr from your perspective in the, the restaurant business and just your home cooking and your, and your personal, you know, opinion on it, I mean, how important is self butchering uh, of the animal to you in regard to the end product, as far as like a culinary staple or a process or a tool? <clears throat> Again, it's not as important as how you treated the animal when it was just killed. Right. Um, that that's what determines the quality of the meat. How you butcher it is just how neat the end product is on the plate. Um, how what, what you do to it immediately after you shoot it or harvest it is what determines how edible it is. Right. Without a shadow of a doubt. And you can't make that point too often. Um, don't, you know, if you can get a truck to the deer or anywhere near it, then I would beg you to gut the deer as soon as you shoot it because it, it, it will make a massive difference to the quality of the eating of your meat um but going on from that make sure things that are crucial temperature control okay so you need you need if you're going to do it yourself you need access to refrigeration you need a you need a chiller of some sort now in this country people buy old coca-cola fridges you know the old like commercial ones for like for cents rip the guts out of them, put a bar across, and you've got a mm -hmm. fridge that'll take a white tent because it'll take a fallow deer once yeah. its head and legs are off. Try hanging it with the fur on, not skinning it straight away. It, you don't get the meat, you don't get the outer meat drying out. As soon as you, when you get that skin off, it'll be beautiful, and that means you can use all the meat. You don't get, you don't have to cut any dried meat off it. Um, a lot of people say that uh, the reason that they skin a deer straight away is that it's easier to skin it while it's warm. I've heard that. But to me, the end product's more important than it being a bit tougher to skin later on. Right. So, And if you can chill that deer properly, I find once the fat has set between the skin and the membrane, it's actually not that hard. They're not, nothing's hard to skin, really. Um, and so for us, it's just quality, quality, quality. If you can if you can do something that makes something better, then if it's a little bit harder, it doesn't matter. Um, you owe it to the animal, I think, to do the best you can of it. So, so to butcher it, the key things are really hygienic surroundings, uh, a small backpack machine and lots of bags, um, a sharp bone saw. Um, you can buy them from any butcher's online butcher's supplies shop for a few bucks. A proper 20-inch bone saw with a clean stainless steel blade will change your life when it comes to butchering. Um, and, uh, and, so, and good knives and, and a sharpening steel. That's all you need. And then go on, follow some online stuff. I've done a couple. Loads of people have done them. Um, the guys from Meat Eater have done some really good ones. You know, um, I butcher a little differently to, some, to most people because I butcher with a restaurant perspective in mind. Right. Um, but I think even on, um, I did a series of, uh, of short, uh, lockdown, uh, sort of home videos that my wife videoed with, a, with an iPhone and they're all on my Instagram and on outdoor channels, uh, Instagram and Facebook. And we did a one hour special where we followed a fallow deer from shooting it all the way through to butchering it top to bottom. And that's pretty good actually, because it, I, I butchered that top to bottom as we would in a, in the restaurant. Um, so it's, it shouldn't be scary. And hey, 
the worst thing that can happen is that if you really muck it up, then you can always put the results through the grinder and, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's how I learned. That's how I learned. A lot of burger I, meat. A lot of burger. Yeah, I've screwed up. I, I screwed up loads when I started. It's, it, you've got to start somewhere. Right. Right. That can't, yeah, again, you can't overstate that. Yeah. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be an issue that a lot of people I don't think are really thinking about. I don't think the foresight is there on that, uh, that issue that's mm -hmm. going to become, you know, pretty evident in a few months here in, in the States. I think you're right. Um, it, it's the whole thing's fascinating. I mean, uh, one thing I'm fascinated to learn about when I come over to the States is when you dress animals out in wild places where you can't extract the whole carcass, you've got to break it down on the spot is, I'm fascinated to learn how, how you get the best out of a carcass when you can't hang it in one piece. Because, I mean, I, I know friends who do it all the time and they, they get incredible results. So, you know, the nice thing about this world is you're whenever you go somewhere new, you learn new stuff, you know, so. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's I a can't big wait mindset. to come and learn from people in the States. Yeah, and, and I think at worst, it's always, you know, it still ends up pretty good. You know, it, it's... Of course uh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Oops. Sorry. Right. I, I think you cut out for a second there. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we've hung deer after we've quartered them. I mean, we've always let them sit, but we've also always skinned them pretty much instantly on our end, at least, you know, at the end so of the Why end, have you done you know, that out of interest? I think that it was what you said, just it's easier to skin them when they're fresh. For me, it's just been what everyone I've learned from has done. Yeah. So, and, and it's funny because I've been having this internal dialogue with myself about what would be better to leave the, the, the hide on or to take it off immediately. And honestly, this conversation has kind of swung me. Um, I'm going to start hanging them with the hide on. And again, temperature control is a challenge because our early archery season here is when a lot of us you know, harvest our first animal and it could be 60, 70 degrees out at that time. Yeah, of course. Same with us. Same with us here in September. I mean, with our fallow deer, the key is you've got to have a refrigerator that's big enough to take what you're shooting. And that's the challenge. Not everybody yeah. has access to that. So that's a, a, another reason why we break them down in, in yeah, into no, I get primals that. As, as quickly as we do. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm in the process of putting together something right now in, on my property where I'll have a, a building that I could use refrigeration and I'm going to start doing dry aging and stuff like that. But you really have to take steps to do that. It's not your everyday hunter or outdoorsman that's going to want to no. take those measures. Um, but, you know, we feel pretty strongly about the presentation of it and and again making it just a, a food movement not just chili and burger but we want to put something on the plate that blows people away uh, yeah. i had a, a friend of mine up uh two weeks ago he's a classically trained chef and he works in a lot of the restaurants in the area we've been friends for years and i had some shanks in my freezer still vacuum sealed from last fall i said you know what i'm gonna we're gonna make some osabuco and I put the shanks in my smoker for a couple hours. Then we took them out and I ran them all day. And I mean, it was amazing. And over some just garlic Parmesan polenta. And it wasn't a hard process. It was a lengthy process, but it was so worth it. Because when we sat down, he was like, this is better than most things I've ever had in any restaurant. And you mm -hmm. made it on your porch, essentially. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so we want to kind of change the dynamic and, and the perception of what deer and their the air quote gaminess of deer can be and kind of highlight that as you know something that can be really extraordinary so 
taking the extra steps to do that is not something that everyone's going to want to do. So I think that plays into it, why they skin them and quarter them as quickly. Oh, and I can see all sorts of reasons why people do. I'm just saying that we are lucky enough here that I can, I can go through this process because I've got the facilities. So because the numbers of deer we shoot, we have to have those facilities. Oh, of course. um, Generally here, most, most deer stalkers have now got some sort of a fridge, like, um, even if they only shoot two or three a year, they've got an old Coke fridge, for example. And that sure. does the job does the job fine. Costs a couple of hundred bucks, does the job fine, you know? And um and and I think it makes a difference. I mean, gaminess is an is an interesting one. So if you go back a hundred years or fifty years in the UK, you know, my grandfather used to hang pheasants by the neck, and when he found them bodies on the floor, he used to eat them. Um I mean, they were minging, you know, they were like, whoa, they were wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and it put me off pheasant for nearly for life. And, um, and, and what we know, what we see as a restaurateurs is that the, the eating public, they want to eat the game. They want to eat this wild food, but they, they want to eat it mild. They don't want it strong. So one of the reasons we spent so much time and effort figuring out how to do all this stuff is because we have to be consistent and the public don't want to eat gamey meat. So how do you make game meat, not gamey? And, and so you have to then look at it fairly scientifically uh, about what causes the, what causes gaminess, you know, what does cause it? You shouldn't just accept that a piece of meat is gamey. Something's made it gamey. Gamey in the old days was the tang you got when you hung it for quite a long time and it effectively started to rot. I mean, the, the enzymes kicked in, it's the bacteria kicked in, it started to get, you know, interesting. Um, and so, um, I mean, this is why if you go, when, when we in Britain were in, spent a lot, we spent a couple of hundred years in India, and, you know, the national food of Britain is curry. Well, curry as we British know it, uh, the Indians ate very little in the way of meat. But when the British officers and men were out there, they demanded meat because they were used to it in Britain. So what happened was they, they, they there was no refrigeration. So meat was generally two thirds off. So they spiced the living hell out of it, put a lot of curry, a lot of spice, a lot of flavor on it. And people got the taste for that because it covered up the slightly off rancid meat. And so, um, you know, everything I do is about trying not to have hung meat. I'll give you an example. Every, every large mammal that we have, you, you, you have a tradition that you gut it as soon as you can after shooting it. With one exception in the UK, and that's hares, the hare. Um, now, the, the brown hare is an incredible animal. My favorite eating animal pretty much there is. Stunning, amazing, intelligent, wonderful looking creature. And the tradition is to hang the hare with its guts in for 10 days, two weeks, and you hang it by its back legs and it needs to put a cup suspended from its ears under its nose, hanging downwards to catch the blood. And then you do something called, this is a medieval dish, you do something called jugged hair. So what you do is <laughs> you'd gut the hair just before, and skin it just before you cooked it, by which time it was so strong, it was like, and, um, and then you'd thicken the sauce with the hair's blood. And it's pretty, it's pretty old school, right? you, you know. Now, even the game dealers in the country still get hairs from gamekeepers like that. They, so everything else, rabbits, 
everything is gutted but not hairs for some reason and no one can actually tell me why that is it's just tradition so what we do is we we experimented with getting a particular gamekeeper friend of ours to who had to cull 50 or 100 hairs on his property each year to stop them eating too much and i said to him could you could you, can you gut the hairs for me and he was like i don't understand why would i gut a hair and i said well because you know i said just because i want to try it and he said yeah, all right so so we had him gut the hairs and hang them up straight away in a chiller so they were bled and gutted immediately and hung in a chiller instead of this dark black blue black colored meat that was rippingly strong and blah, what we got was a pale pink meat that was sweet and delicious and really delicately flavored and that's how we now do hair now we do hair so everyone else still hangs them with their guts but so a lot of things is about challenging tradition and saying should i do it that way because my dad did it that way and my uncle did it that way and you know i mean we've we've done that in england quite a lot um and, and for us it works in i mean you know it's it's everything's down to the individual at the end of the day i never judge anybody on how they do things it's just like there's 50 ways of gutting a deer you know hey, hey pennsylvania i hope i hope you're listening right now because that's we're in the midst of a battle between i, I maybe we'll, we'll call it a generational divide people who, who don't want to shoot dough people who don't want to change things people who don't want to evolve and and experiment and it's uh sounds like that's what we have to be open to i mean it's it's well, like a, a reoccurring theme here i mean i have absolutely no knowledge or influence over what happens in the states like i i don't i haven't hunted in the states so i don't know what i don't know the practices or anything all i can do is is tell you what we do and how we came and and more importantly the reasons why we came to those conclusions um and i think that's the great thing about advice in this world you don't have to take it you know <laughs> right right but it's there and that's mm. i i think that you know we could learn something from this on a, on a much larger level you know we have to listen to each other because there's other things out there i learn you, all you the time like i'll learn a tip from a gamekeeper or another deer stalker or you know a, a different way of cutting a leg off a deer or or you know you can always learn that's it. You know, I, and we kind of come back to the tradition thing, you know, like when I first started watching the, the, the first season of Farming the Wild, there is the reason I was really attracted to it was there are so many things that I noticed right off the bat that were different than the traditions that we we have here, uh, whether it's hunting with dogs. I mean, it's unheard of here unless you lose a deer and then they bring out tracking dogs in some states. It's legal to do that. And they help to, mm -hmm. you know, track the dog down, um, hunting with suppressed rifles, which is something that's very, very seldomly done here, mainly it's because of the laws. By the way. <laughs> uh, you know, I would a hundred percent agree with you. And I think that's something that we're very much behind the times on. Mm. Um, but you know, another thing that I noticed that you seldom, seldomly do on your show was to wear camouflage. Yeah, I never wear camo. Um, I, I um, it, you know, it's it's only because there are times when it helps. There's no question. I mean, when I'm bow hunting, crucial. In the British environment, we generally like to wear n neutral colours because we don't generally like to announce what we're doing in the countryside. Um, 
there are times now. So in that first season, I was mainly hunting a little bit of woodland, but quite a lot of wide open ground. And and uh, now in the thick woodland, I'm hunting more and more. And um, I'm using camo more and more. Like in season two, I'm wearing an old British Army jacket that I bought for like 10 bucks, I think. And it's awesome. I mean, you get cold and wet straight away. It's not waterproof. And um, we're actually just now uh, starting to work with a, uh, an, a there's an, I don't know if you guys have heard, but there's an amazing new clothing manufacturer just starting up in the States um, called Forlo. Have you heard of Forlo? I have. I've, I've seen some, uh, some whispers on the, uh, on the old if, social if you, media. If you haven't, you will soon. They're, they're, they're absolutely amazing people. And I'm, we're going to work with them. Um, and I'm excited because they're going to, they're going to do a range, not only of, of camo, but of neutral colors, which is really awesome. Oh, so, wow. And, um, and, and really smart, but also, I mean, things I really love is that all their kits made in America. So everything, the membranes, the clothing, everything's made in the States. And that's really awesome. Um, but for me, I, I, um, I, I, I haven't often in the past, do you know, it's just not something we've really done, but when you are in open ground, so when you go, if I go to Scotland, dear stalking, where you're on mountain ground, I will always wear camo up there because like uh, the last episode that just came out, I was wearing, um, you know, it's fairly pale colored, but it's effectively tailored to the hill because, um, and I always try and wear a mixture of clothing to break up, but it, it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting one. Lots of people do wear camouflage here. Um, I, uh, I, I, I tend to just, uh, up till now, I've always just grabbed what I can. But it, there are probably circumstances where it would have helped me be more effective. Um, but, and also a lot of commercial um, camo clothing, like the more modern stuff that I've come across, is quite, has, has been quite noisy, quite shiny. Uh -huh. And noise is our number one enemy in the UK because we're quite, it's quite, woodland's quite, you get very close to deer. And so we want to be very silent. Um, so I like soft, soft, quiet. The holy grail for me would be soft, quiet camouflage. Right. It's also waterproof because it rains here all the time. Right. Uh, and that's it. You know, here, here, you know, camouflage companies, it, it, that's big business here. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And it's almost like the the first piece of kit that some hunters think of, but it's the it's where they place the least financial commitment and um you know everyone gets cold i mean we live in the northeast of america yeah. here and we get some sub-zero temperatures i mean uh you know it would take me a minute to do the math between fahrenheit and celsius to get the point across uh but you know we get some sub-zero temperatures here and it's something that's vital but you know some of the and it could be a tremendous point of contention and, and mark and i have had this conversation is it, it's more of movement or lack thereof than the colors you're wearing or the camouflage pattern you're wearing. And we've had this conversation a number of times and, and it was just kind of cool to see, like, that's exactly what we were talking about. You mm -hmm. don't have to have all this camouflage patterns to, to be successful in the field. And, and, uh, and to, so to see that it was kind of one of those things that is so drastically different from what we see here. I mean, if somebody were to 
put a picture of themselves on social media wearing what you wear hunting here in Pennsylvania. People would make fun of them, honestly. You know, it wouldn't really yeah. go over well. It would be like, what are you doing? Why are you not wearing camouflage? It's so ingrained into the 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 history of what we do here. It's like it comes back around to we have to kind of explore other options and be open to other yeah. methods. I have to say, from my point of view, I... I... I've, I I realize that I, I don't have very much of it. That's the problem. I, I've got one old crappy jacket that's made of cotton. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to start working with these guys to start using some stuff that's quiet, that's what keeps me warm, that's waterproof. I mean, I, I'm out, I'm, I do 100 days a year at least out in the woods with a rifle or on a hill. And, yeah. And... Um, we have pretty awful weather in this country. It rain, mainly wet and cold. It rains and rains and is cold for five straight months. And um, so I, I think it's it, to me to be warm and dry and to have my outline broken up. That's amazing. Yep. So I'm not make, when I don't wear camo. I'm not making a real statement. It's more that I just don't have any. Um, right. And um, and uh, I, I like. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, for me, it's got to be the problem in Britain is most camo up till now has been military style camo. And we try not to look military with a rifle in the woods. Whereas, Fair enough. Um, because it's so built up and there's so many people. So when you have, when you have the modern hunting style camo, it's obviously not military. So th there isn't so much of an issue with it. But I think th there's a combination of things. Field, nothing beats field craft. You know, field craft is crucial. Um, knowing the wind, working with it. But if you can do, if you can get something that can help you, the closer you get to a deer, the more likely you are to kill it cleanly and efficiently. That's the bottom line. So, right. if, if I if I can if I can wear something that keeps me warm and dry, that gets me closer to a deer, that allows me to shoot it cleaner and more efficiently, then I'm going to wear it. You know. Um, so I have no real judgment on clothing except that I'd like, I'd like not to be wet if at all possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a plus. For sure. that's a good one. Staying warm, staying dry is vital. And you know, when, when you place priority on those, the quiet, the, the warmth, the, the, that's, that's where you're going to have a little bit more success. And, and again, it's, it's actually funny to see how, how some people react to different, you know, clothing brands and things like that. Like, well, mm. one end of the spectrum, there's no way I'll spend that kind of money on that brand because it's overpriced, but the, the quality of the gear is tremendous and it keeps you dry. It keeps you warm. Quality uh, is everything. You know, if you're going to spend a thousand bucks on a scope, then you should be willing to spend a thousand bucks on what keeps you from shivering. A hundred percent. No, you're a hundred percent right. And that's been, that's been kind of the argument against it. We just spoke to a, a representative from a, a brand called Sitka gear and they're yeah, kind I of a high end. I had a pair of gloves once of theirs. They were very good. Yeah. Yeah. He was on the podcast. We had him on uh, just, was it one, one, or, one or two episodes ago? And um, the, the, the materials that they're making this stuff out of is just tremendous. The technology Amazing. and the textiles, but and, and I think when you put the focus on something like that and, and the comfort factor and the utilitarian aspect of it, I think you're going to be more well served than what color it is and what leaf it looks like. And in, in my opinion, well, we are moving in this country far more towards um, towards that because I'm starting to see more and more deer stalkers wearing more technical clothing now. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense when you consider how horrible the weather generally is here. Sure. Um, and, um, 
you know, I got talking to uh, the gentleman that owns Follow, who's who's put his who's really invested in it, and and it's it's been a fascinating conversation actually because I never knew really what went into um, what went into uh, the technology behind it, but these guys have actually uh, created their own technology. They haven't licensed it, and as I say, they're making it all in the U.S. So they're they're kind of doing what we do in Britain. They're keeping it all they're keeping it all circular. And and I believe that their 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 kit is 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 like next level. It's like fifth generation. So I can't wait. I'm I'm getting some in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to be trialing it and hunting with it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really exciting. They'd be they'd be really interesting people for you guys to talk to. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, we anybody who's in the industry that's you know kind of uh, making waves. It's kind of yeah. right up our alley. I mean, there's a there's a a million outdoor podcasts out there that kind of have a similar structure or business model. And we, we, we like to kind of differentiate ourselves with things like the food side of it, the food aspect, mm-hmm. um, which kind of, I have, I, another thing I wanted to kind of touch on is what a lot of people here tend to do is they leave a lot of the organs in the pile in the woods. And uh, that's something that Mark and I have been kind of coming back around to uh, last year, Mark made a, uh, a heart dish. Uh, he and I went out and he, we came back from hunting and he made a heart dish and it blew my mind. It's like now it's one of my favorite parts of the animal, but to get into, uh, I think I saw a dish you did with, uh, it was deviled liver and kidneys. Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, man, I know what I'm doing this fall. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So uh, is that something that you use a lot yeah. in your restaurants, like the, yep. the actual organ meat? Yeah, we use liver and heart all the time. Um, part of the part of the deal I have with my dogs is that they get they get heart when we kill a deer. So it's kind of a deal. I can't break that. They, 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 they won't. Yeah, they, they, they don't they don't like me very much if they don't get the heart. So um, they kind of go on strike. So we we um, so they get the bottom <laughs> half of the heart. And but if I shoot three or four or five in the morning, then they'll get a piece of heart. The rest of the hearts will go in a vacuum pack bag. Uh, the livers and the kidneys will all go up to the restaurant and uh, and the tongues as well. Um, and we'll cook all of those. And the people love them. The customers think they're great. That, that's, that kind of leads me into a, a question I had lined up. Uh, we kind of touched on it earlier when we were talking, but... You, you kind of have your different venisons classified. You, you said that uh, you said red deer would be near the bottom, but we're, we're splitting hairs and you said fallow would be near the top. So I could, I mean, this is personal, right? But um, cause I've got, I have these arguments with friends all the time in the UK. We have six species of deer in the wild in Britain that we hunt regularly. So, I mean, to list them from bottom to top, the smallest is called a muntjac. Do you know what a muntjac is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've shot them on my show. So, yep. I mean, it's like a it's like a cocker spaniel, right? So there's the muntjac, and then so that would be a twenty pound carcass, a big a big one, a big one's a twenty pound carcass. Um, then you have a Chinese water deer, and a Chinese water deer is a um, is a bit bigger, maybe a twenty five pound carcass. They're it's super cool. Deer. Yeah, it's yeah, a crazy they're really. Deer. Looks like a vampire teddy bear. So it has yeah. no tusks, no antlers. Tusks two and a half inches long, coming out below is like a saber-toothed deer, right? Yeah. Odd animals, but phenomenal to eat. Like 
poof, like thick layer of fat, unbelievable, pale meat, great. Munjak also exquisite, sweet, like spring lamb, like just delicious. Maybe the most popular in the restaurants. If I put Munjak on the menu, it's gone. Uh, then you have going up in size, the roe deer, which is one of our indigenous species. Now, it's one of the prettiest animals on God's earth. It's absolutely incredible. The, the roe deer is just a wonderful creature. I have enormous difficulty shooting them because they're just so graceful and they look like they ordered, they just look like they're part of nature. They're very, very lovely. And, but they're very successful breeders. A female roe deer has triplets and twins every year. Um, and I don't overly like the meat from roe deer, but then I, well, our most successful dish in the restaurant is a shoulder, a slow cooked 12 hour shoulder of roe deer for two people. And so when it's slow cooked, it's amazing. Love it. Then you have um, the seeker, the seeker deer, which is uh, absolutely phenomenal. Um, a cousin of the red deer. It's a Japanese service nippon is its Latin name. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a variant of a red deer, but it's absolutely stunning. Interesting fact about seeker, they can live on almost anything. I mean, we say, uh, they can graze a pool table because they've got a <laughs> they've got a, a digestive tract that's about two feet longer than a lot of other deer, which allows them to process the same amount of food much more efficiently, and thus they'll stay fat and in good condition on ground that would kill another deer species. So they're amazing. Uh, then you have the fallow, which is highly prolific, absolutely stunning, consistent, lovely. For me, it's like the it's like the Ford, the Ford of the deer world. It's like, it's like, it, it always works. It's always good. It's, it's just a great, it's a great thing, you know? Oh, careful. Um, <laughs> I've had People a few get Fords real. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm teasing. It's the Ford Chevy <laughs> debate here in the States is a little, a little crazy too. Well, we could call them Chevys then. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, um, and then you've got the red deer, which is the biggest deer, which is, I mean, I love red deer. I've got my own little deer herd in a captive deer herd and I've got reds and I love them, but I'll be honest with you. I don't particularly like eating them. Um, they don't eat as well as the others. So they're, 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 it's, this is personal preference. I know people who think red deer are the bee's knees. They love them. Mm -hmm. So, um, and indeed in supermarkets, etc., and red deer is the, the meat that's sold because it's, it's the meat that's farmed. So, you know, it is what it is. But to me, they're rather irony and they're quite metallic in flavor and they're quite bloody. Whereas a fallow's sweet and I mean, I just think it's ace. It's really good. Where where do you fit whitetail into that dichotomy of venison? So I imagine whitetail is somewhat like fallow deer. Um, now, the only whitetail I've eaten ever <laughs> is in Mexico. And they have a particular flavor because of what they eat. They eat sagebrush mm -hmm. and mesquite and things like that. And they and you can taste it in them. Right. Um, so it, it it wasn't unpleasant, but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't my favorite flavored venison I've ever eaten. But right. then I have a lot of friends who eat Kansas and I've got friends in Alberta and Canada, Alberta right. whitetails, who say they're like they're like fat and butts they're like butter you know that is like, yeah totally so different. I, I think animals are what they eat if i'm honest with you generally 100 percent. yep yep so um I, I i wouldn't like to say 
what whitetail's like from a chef's point of view, because I'd probably have to taste it from 52 different states, you know? <laughs> right, right. Is that a very diplomatic answer? It might be. Indeed, yes. <laughs> so so that leads me into my the next part of the question. So I, I think you might have answered it before, but what is your favorite cut from your favorite deer? So there's two answers to that. Um, there's one is my favorite because uh, all cuts divide into two, two bits, which is fast cooking and slow cooking. So I would say my absolute favorite slow cooking cut is a shoulder on the bone, slow cooked, and then bone removed, glazed and finished, <clears throat> pulled apart. And what's my favorite cut of, uh, I think my favorite cut of other cut would have to be, uh, even though the one I sell the most is the pave off the haunch, I think my favorite would be the, um, uh, off the saddle, the, uh, the rack. So I'd like a, I'd like it on the bone. I'd like a two bone or a four bone rack, uh, cut into individual chops. And I think grilled chops to me are my favorite. It's got to have a bone attached to it. That's the secret. So, so then let's just roll right into the preparation. What, what, how, how are you preparing it? What, what sauce are you putting on it? I'm not, um, I'm not a big rub. Um, I think deer tastes lovely. Uh, I don't particularly want to make it taste of other stuff. So um, I generally use things like, I might whiz up in a food processor, some fresh rosemary, some garlic, some olive oil, a little bit of lemon zest, some salt and pepper yep. till it's blitzed and then just paint it with that. I might, I never ever, uh, unless I'm smoking it a shoulder slowly, I'll never put like a paprika and onion powder based rub on it. Cause I think what you're doing there is you're masking the flavor of the meat. Yeah. So, Does my heart good to hear that. I tell yeah. you. So in, in a restaurant, it's salt and pepper. Yeah. Uh, and, and, a, and there'll be a sauce on the side, which will be, um, which will generally be uh, made from its bones and vegetables and things like that. We, we actually have a question in the comments about, your gravy technique if you could divulge that without giving away any yeah, no, sure. um, restaurant secrets which one. we make a basic sauce a deer sauce uh, it, it you kind of a lot of people call it jus um mm -hmm. and that's not accurate really either because in french culinary terminology a jus is actually the sauce that comes out of a piece of meat when you cook it and and so literally it's thin meat juices that you've just poured back over the meat. Now, what most people think a jus is, is a thick, delicious, rich, red winey type sauce, but actually that's sauce. So if we're being specific, I like a good sauce. I mean, I love a good sauce. So we take venison bones, we take veal bones, beef bones, beef marrow bones, um, wood pigeon carcasses, because they're really good for some reason. And we serve a lot of pigeon, wild pigeon in the restaurant. Um, and we roast them in a really hot oven until they're almost black. Throw them in a big stock pot, uh, like 200 pint stock pot. And add 180 pints of water, you know. And then yeah. anyway, that cooks for about two days. And then, um, and then we skim all the fat, uh, drain it off, get rid of the bones. And then we start reducing it, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, reduce it. And it's a hell of a process. And then once it's down to about, you know, 10 pints or something, <laughs> um, like a 20th, we then will 
take three or four bottles of red wine in a pan and reduce them down by nine tenths. Mm -hmm. Add that in. Burn a load of onions on a hot plate so they go all dark and caramel. Throw those in. Um, it's a process. And then yeah. what you end up with is a solid block when it cools down of this crystal clear, just fabulously deep, rich game gravy, I think we call it. Yeah. And then we actually call that universal because it's a, it's nice. a jus, but it's universal. So we call it universal. <laughs> and then from that universal, you can then add green peppercorns or you can add smoked bone marrow from smoked beef bone marrow that you put little lumps of in it and it and that will melt and you get a split sauce out of that and you can you know all sorts of stuff no yeah. easy answer <laughs> no it's it's a process i'm familiar with it mm -hmm. uh, i'm a big fan of that process it's it's lengthy but it's one of those things where it's not something you do to be quick it's something you do to be good and to, to put some love into the food man that's uh we call it demi-gloss uh mm -hmm. you know there's different ways of doing it and I've still got a few blocks of Demi out in my freezer that I made uh, this last fall. Oddly enough, it was a deer that uh, a friend of my wife, it was an older buck, big buck. Somebody told him that it wasn't going to taste any good because it was an older deer. I said, well, then I'll be happy to take that off your hands. And uh, I'm still eating some of the meat from it. I made a demi-glass out of it. I still have some left over. I mean, we try to use as much of it as, as, as we can, which kind of, stimulated the whole organ conversation and the organ meat and stuff like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, the more we can use of the animal, I think the more justice we serve it, you know, as I a, agree. To, to kind of quote you, it died for us, you know what yeah. I mean? And it's the least we could do to kind of make the most of it. Yeah, no, I, I completely concur. Now, interesting about the older, older animal debate. Now we, we I, I used to have the general assumption that an older deer wouldn't eat that well. Now, it's not necessarily the case. If it, if it, harking back to our previous conversation, if it's been treated really well, if it's been, if it's been bled and gutted and everything else, then, um, then that's not necessarily the case. I I have a dry aging fridge at work, and I took a couple. I took a, we shot a massive fallow buck last September. Like I mean, a big lad. You know, he was a two hundred pound buck, and he had a he had funny antlers i wasn't happy to have him breeding so you know he got it and um and that we, we looked at it and we thought and it had like an inch and a half of fat all over it it was just colossal anyway we we took the whole saddle off that guy and i painted the cut ends of the saddle with beef fat with dripping um which i melted and then painted on to seal the meat and we aged that guy for eight weeks in the dry agent at the saddle and those chops, we, we served one single chop that was about that big, you know. Wow. Uh, on the bone, roasted with something else. It was all very beautiful on a tasting menu. And that was maybe the nicest eating venison I've ever had. Yeah, that sounds And that amazing. was a seven-year-old buck. It was really yeah. good. Well, we're rolling up on, geez, an hour and five minutes going on. We're going to be <laughs> up on. Yeah. But uh, I know it's late for you, and uh, oh, chef's hours! It's only twenty past one in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a question. It, it it kind of doesn't relate to to hunting at all. I mean, Jay and I pursue this this venture together, and and we're we're constantly working at it. And I was driving the other day, and I thought to myself, you know, it, 
I, I have to do this and I have to do this. And, and it, it felt like a lot. And I was like trying to push myself, but then I think about what you're doing day to day where you're a farmer and you're a restaurant owner and you're hosting a show. And so what exactly is your mindset going into a day? Like how, how do you push yourself through all that? I mean, it's, it, it, and I don't, I guess it's not really, I guess it's not really pushing yourself, but what, what's driving what's your, what's your, what's your end goal? I don't know. Um, it just seems to be developing and, uh, and life's an adventure. So I just want to do as much as I can for as long as I can. And I, I'd like to, um, I like the educational side of it. I like passing on. I mean, some of the knowledge we've, we've found has been pretty hard won. you know, I mean, um, I've, I've probably shot in my career and it's not something I'm proud of, but because I've, I've done it for a long time and I've done a lot of it, I've probably shot four or 5,000 deer. And, you know, that's a lot of gutting and a lot of processing and a lot of whatever. And, um, and by some of my peer standards, that's not a lot. I mean, I know people have done a lot more than that. And so to us, it becomes sort of, um, it, it becomes for me, it's, it's, it's just a it's a process and it's a really important one and i i want to try and get outside the the bubble of hunting and and try and try and get the message out to um to, to non-hunters because i always feel like we're preaching to the converted you know you love mm -hmm. hunting you love hunting most of the people watching this love hunting i love hunting i like eating what i hunt most people that's their driver at the end of the day i know we watch all these shows on television where people are lucky enough to hunt amazing huge bucks and i like watching those shows as well they're great but um for most people i think the driver is food i, I do i mean I, I certainly my driver is food and and i think it's one of the most honest things any human being can do is to say i have gone out there pitted my wits against something and put it in the freezer and contributed to conservation and wildlife management while i'm doing it and 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 if I can uh, if I can get an increasingly agitated and polarized public to understand that it's a good thing, not a bad thing, then I feel like I've done something good with my life. I think. Yeah, and, that's awesome. It's and, a great answer. And, and and for me, the easiest way I can do that is through restaurants, because ninety nine percent of my customers aren't hunters. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think um, Jay and I said that in the first episode that the, the way to most people's open mind is through their stomach. hundred percent. The only justification to the public of killing anything is if we eat it. Yep. Right. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. You can't persuade the public who don't hunt otherwise. Right. That's it. Um, You're here in the States. We're a very small percentage. I mean, five, six percent of the United States are actually hunters. So hmm. we we lie on the other 95% of the population to um I don't want to say allow us to do what we do, but if they decided to rise up, we're outnumbered in a severe manner. So hmm. how we conduct ourselves and and how we promote ourselves is is vital now. And you know, if we start to kind of play the wrong tune, so to speak. Uh, we're going to find ourselves in a really, really off-centered battle, and it's not—it's not a winning war by any means. So, um, and I think you know by respecting the animal and, and that we pursue, and by 
kind of using them in that manner and celebrating them. Uh, I think that kind of takes a little bit of the bad taste from the mouths of the people who all they see is us as killers who just want to just obliterate these animals. And, and, and it, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow for some people, but when they see what you're doing um, with bringing the, the, the food and the sustenance and the sustainability conservation, when you bring that to the forefront and that becomes the reason for the, what you do and, and the, everything that follows behind it. I, I think that's exactly what we need, uh, especially now in the age of social media, in the age of, you know, just reading headlines. I think we need a lot more of that. And, um, you know, I, again, I, I'm truly thankful for what you've done so far with your platform. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of Mark as well, that, you know, we, there's a lot of bad opinions uh, on hunters and rightfully so because of the actions of certain few that affects the many. And I can't thank you enough for what you do with your platform and with your restaurants and all that, that you put the game and the food and that conservation aspect at the forefront of, of all your success. Well, it's it, all I can say is it's, it's, it, I'm very lucky and it's an amazing journey to be on, you know, I, I love it. No and, um, and, and, my experience, the, the public, most of the public get it. They don't have an issue with it. There's a loud minority that really hates what we do. And that, and unfortunately, I think that will always be the way. Um, but, you know, I, the, the, the weird thing, the, the, the more, the older I get, the more I've done it. I'm much less interested in, in, in the, in the killing side. It's not something that I, I glory in in the slightest. I, I, it, it, the management of these animals has to take place. They have to be harvested because we don't live in a, in Britain more than America. There's no natural predators whatsoever. We don't live in a natural world. It, we are the predator. There's only two ways that a deer generally dies in the UK. And one is at the hands of me and one is at the hands of a motor car. And that tends to be it. Wow. So honestly, there's no wolves, there's no bears, there's no coyotes. That's it. Combine harvesters, do a lot of damage um fences do a lot of damage cars do a huge amount of damage and so you know we we uh, uh, i think a humane a humane soul with skills with a rifle is is the, the best deer conservation tool there is and um and uh and the, the important bit is that soul has to be humane people have to people have to go out there with the deer's welfare in mind and um and to me that's that's absolutely everything so mm -hmm. You know, and um, and I have I never judge anybody. I if somebody's driver is that they've got one deer a year and they'd like to get with something with amazing antlers, well, it's a proven fact that trophies are a byproduct of good deer management. I mean, it, it, they just are. Um, my personal driver is to harvest um, generally female and 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 and, and non-trophy animals, but that's just because that's what I like doing. But uh, I think the important thing also is that we, we don't judge each other too harshly. Yeah, man. I, I, I don't know if you could sum up everything better than that, really. I mean, we're, we're on our third season of this podcast, and, and that's kind of the, the encompassing message that we've been trying to send. And I don't know. I, don't, I really don't think there's anything else to say after <laughs> that. <laughs> you you kind of you nailed it with that one. 
Well, I hope you guys can one day come over here and I can show you what we do. Oh, I, I showed uh, my wife a couple of the videos um, and uh, I'm going to pop these up real quick. Just, uh, you know, I think that this is the one that got her particularly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's at my um, that's at my London restaurant, the Harwood Arms. And yeah. uh, that is I'll tell you what that is. Um, you've got the little the little the little dark colored thingy on the bottom right is a pickled walnut. Now, I I last week we pickled uh two and a half thousand of those from my tree out out this window here behind me uh so we pickle them ourselves every year when they're green and then <clears throat> in a mixture of uh of malt vinegar cider vinegar uh brown sugar mace cloves cinnamon sticks stuff like that then you've got a, a perfect chop of fallow deer exactly what i was talking about earlier uh with uh a piece of smoked bone marrow on top which is no, what that is, that is. <laughs> uh, you You've got your you've got your uh, demi glass <laughs> around yeah. it, and then you have here uh, a prune, a little dried plum, soaked in tea, cooked in tea, on a bed of um, pumpkin puree, um, and a perfectly cooked carrot cooked in chicken stock, on underneath the walnut. Yeah, That's, that dish was a couple of years ago, but that I, I can remember it very well. I've eaten it a lot. <laughs> Uh, a chef, a chef never forgets. Yeah, that's that. That's more of what we like to see is stuff like that. I mean, granted, I, I make a pretty mean chili. I make some pretty good burgers. I know a lot of people who that's the staple: the jerky, the burgers, that kind of stuff. And that's fantastic because that harkens back to a lot of heritage for us here. You know, yeah. this is my grandfather's recipe. Mark's father makes some of the best jerky on the planet, not bar hands down. Uh, and, and these are the things that we're, we're accustomed to and we're used to. But I think there's definitely a, a place for that higher end. I mean, I spent 20 years of my life in a kitchen before I got into the field I'm in now. Mark actually owned a restaurant for several years. I mean, we both, food is a huge part of what we do when we're in the outdoors, whether it's fish, small game, white-tailed deer, wild turkey. I mean, that that is the the epitome is what kind of cool dish can we make mm. and how can we stretch the boundaries of what is normally seen as subsistence food, you know? So I love seeing that. Yeah. And, uh, the one thing I want to say is that as, as much <coughs> as I love the high end stuff that I love bar food yeah, yeah. so much too. <laughs> and then the, the, the tall, the tall pint of, of British ale, yeah. that that looks just as good as the egg. I think I, I it, it's tough for me because we talked a little bit earlier. Tasty. I'm a hey, listen, that Scotch egg. I've got to tell you, that's a that's a construction of genius. That that's hard to make. Um, they are hard to do consistently. So when you cut that baby open, it should it, the, the meat should be perfectly cooked uh, and a little pink. Oh, good look. And the yolk <laughs> of that egg should be just tacky it should be just soft and uh and and there's a strict regime of timing temperature control and everything else that gets it there it's basically a it's basically a um an egg for five and a quarter minutes from room temperature boiling into ice water shelled with ridiculous care because you tend to screw up about 10 before you get them right yeah and i've got fat hands and that I, i'm not very good at it and <laughs> And then the mixture is 50% pork or wild boar, 
and 50% wild venison. What kind of thyme, thyme and rosemary and, and yeah. salt and black pepper, and then um, panko breadcrumbs around the outside, and then it's it's chilled, and then it's um, deep fried for another five and a half minutes at 170 degrees centigrade, then rested for two and a half before it's served. So it, all these things are quite precise, um, and they've taken a lot of accidents to get them right. That's hard enough to pull off in your home kitchen. Never mind on a large scale in a yeah. restaurant. So yeah, where, where you're uh, on the clock. Do about ninety a day. Man, well, cheers to that, man. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> I've run out. Well, that's yeah. I. I mine magically refilled. Yeah, yeah, I want one of those glasses. You got it. With that, I don't know. I don't think that uh, we should go any longer. I think that. Uh, you might have to get a couple hours of sleep and yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm, with you. I'm, I'm on the road in five hours to the restaurant. Oh my God. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This has been an amazing episode. We, we have to have you on again. Uh, Anytime. Let me know. Just on the other side of this wall, we've got a full fledged podcast studio in the making. So next time you're, you're over here. Yep. I'll come by. Yeah. We'll set it up. Oh, that'd be awesome. Hey, yeah. I guess. Awesome. I can't thank you enough. This was tremendous. This was big for me. Uh, I've been a big fan of yours for some time now. So we really, truly appreciate taking the time out of your day. You are quite a busy individual. So uh, <laughs> on behalf of myself, Mark, uh, the Sons of the Hunt community, we truly appreciate you taking some time to talk with all of us and, and share some of your uh, your insight. Well, thank you. And if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't have a show on outdoor. So I'm very grateful. Well, no, well, we're, we're <laughs> yeah. following you the whole way. <laughs> Take care, that, guys. With that, we will wrap it up. Thank you to Mike Robinson and uh, Farming the Wild and everything you guys do. We will see you in the next episode. <laughs>